Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Good to be with you. We have a big show for you today, and we'll get to my interview with presidential candidate Julian Castro later in the show. You're going to want to stick around for that. But first... Well, I'm going to get on the old turnpike, and I'm going to drive. I'm going to leave this town till you decide which one you want the most. Them Opry stars are me. Milwaukee, here I come from Nashville, Tennessee. I am thrilled to announce that in 2020, for the first time in history, the Democratic Party's national convention will be held right here in the great state of Wisconsin, in the great city of Milwaukee. So, do you come to Milwaukee often? Well, I'm a regular visitor here, but Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. Today, it's all about Wisconsin. Democrats didn't just pick Milwaukee to host their convention in 2020 because of the weather, though that is a perk. They picked it at least in part because of this. CNN now projects that Donald Trump will carry the state of Wisconsin. He will win Wisconsin with its 10 electoral votes. He's cracked the so-called blue wall that Hillary Clinton had tried to create. Uh, Donald Trump wins Wisconsin. Take a look at this, 92% of the So Trump won Wisconsin and Democrats were left asking why. After all, Barack Obama won easily here in 2008 and 2012. No Republican had won the state since 1984. And this state and its 10 electoral votes have been a staple of the Democrats' electoral college strategy for as long as we can remember. In 2020, Wisconsin will be the center of attention, one of the most highly competitive battleground states in the country. But first, what happened here in 2016? Among Democrats, a few theories have emerged. One that gets a lot of attention? Blame Hillary Clinton. After all, there was a lack of enthusiasm for her candidacy. And most famously, she didn't campaign in the state. I think they thought Wisconsin, Michigan was in the bag. That's Congresswoman Gwen Moore. She's a Democrat representing Wisconsin's 4th Congressional District, which is centered in Milwaukee. She says she sensed trouble early on. I can tell you that... You know, you could you could hear a mouse pee on cotton in Milwaukee. It was so uh, slow. And I did reach out to the DNC saying, look, I've got an idea. We could make human billboards here. If you could just authorize, they, they had an image of an, moms who demanded um, some justice mm-hmm. from their sons who had been killed and daughter, Sandra Bland, who had been killed by police officers, said, if you could just put these images on the back of a T-shirt and give me small, medium, and large, or extra large, we can generate some energy here. There's no energy around this election. And of course, I think that the Russian bots amplified messages on Facebook, you know, accusing Hillary of calling African-Americans as super predators. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. Even though she was someone's wife, I mean, she wasn't even, she wasn't even an elected official. Uh, and Bernie voted for that crime bill. And, of course, that message was not amplified. He voted for it for good reason. It had the Violence Against Women Act in it. 
I'm thinking of Bobby Rush. Black Panther Party voted for that crime bill. The Lion of New York, Charles Rangel voted for it. And, and Hillary didn't, but it was a message amplified by the Russians. And so there were a lot of things, you know, James Comey's announcement. There were a lot of things, but I think the message is very clear. Wisconsin is not the place to be taken for granted. 22,000 votes is a pretty narrow margin in a state with 5.7 million people. So certainly some enthusiasm would have helped. Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin agrees that enthusiasm contributed to the Democrats' loss in Wisconsin. But I would also say that Trump won over some voters who had voted for Obama. Okay, we're going to unpack that Obama-Trump voter stuff in just a bit. But Senator Baldwin pointed out another important factor as well. Wisconsin had passed two laws that contributed to a low voter turnout. One, an early voting restriction that limited the days of the week and locations that cities could host early voting. That was overturned by a court just a couple months before the November 16 election. We rejoiced and then learned that there wasn't a municipality around that had put in their budget sufficient funds to have a robust early voting program. And really only one community in the entire state figured out a way to do it in a very cost-effective manner by making every library in the city a polling place and deputizing all the librarians. Did that happen? That happened in Madison. And Madison had a higher turnout than was anticipated in 16. In Milwaukee, they had two locations, limited number of weeks, limited number of days per week. In other cities, they had one location. So as often happens in politics, as you look more closely, a complicated narrative begins to emerge. We'll hear more from Senator Baldwin and Congresswoman Moore later in the show. But first, to help make sense of this, I talk to... Craig Gilbert, Washington Bureau Chief of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I think Craig Gilbert is one of the sharpest political analysts around, and no one studies Wisconsin electoral politics as closely as he does. I think what threw people for a loop was that Barack Obama had done so well in Wisconsin. But he's kind of an outlier when you look back over the longer history. I mean, he he won Wisconsin by 14 points in 2008 and by 7 points in 2012. He really overperformed as a Democrat. When you look at the longer history, you've got a state that has generally been voting Republican more often than not for governor, has elected members of both parties to the U.S. Senate, And in presidential races um, during the Clinton years, it was like right on kind of the national vote. And then uh, the two Bush elections in 2000 and 2004, it was razor tight. And so three the, the last three close national elections for president, Wisconsin was decided by less than a point. So that kind of tells you all you really need to know about the competitiveness of the state. So has the state then changed since... Barack Obama's election or that the state is basically reverting back to its pre-Obama sort of political constituency? I think a little bit of both. I mean, there is some change going on and there is some kind of reversion going on. So Barack, one of the reasons, I mean, it's not entirely clear to me why Obama was so popular in Wisconsin. But one thing that one form that took was that he not only mobilized Democratic voters and people in places like Milwaukee and Madison, but he performed for a Democrat pretty well with um, blue-collar whites and rural whites. 
when Democrats do that, and they've done that in many cases in Wisconsin, they perform really well statewide. Um, but that didn't happen, obviously, in Hillary Clinton's case in 2016. So there are long-term trends. And the one that one of the biggest is one that you're familiar with and many listeners will be familiar with, which is that white, particularly blue-collar white men, have been moving toward the Republican Party. And so even though one form that takes when you look at the map is that these more blue-collar rural counties um, have trended Republican. Some of them are very swingy, and um, they swung hard for Obama, from Obama to Trump in 2016, but some of them are long-term trending Republican. What did you see as sort of the, the key explanation for the 2016 result? Well, if you just look at it in terms of the margin of victory, which is less than 23,000 votes, it's pretty easy to make a case for all sorts of things like we can in any close election. And so, yes, in a kind of mathematical sense, you could argue that the drop off in the city of Milwaukee, for example, from Obama's performance to Hillary Clinton's performance was enough by itself to make the difference. But I don't look at it that way because the way I look at it is you had a seven-point swing in Wisconsin from Obama's 2012 election, to um, which he won by six or seven points, to Donald Trump's less than one-point victory. And of that seven-point swing, um, what happened in the city of Milwaukee was just a small part of it, really. I mean, the bigger part was what happened in the rest of the state, particularly in these smaller counties and rural counties in northern Wisconsin and western Wisconsin. These the swings were so sizable in so many small towns, it can't be explained even just by turnout. I mean, clearly there were some voters in these places that were switching, uh, vote switching, and that were swinging against the party in the White House and voting for the outsider. Hillary Clinton's unpopularity in the state and among those voters was huge. And also, you know, I think you could also make the case similarly in a narrow mathematical sense that her neglect of the state was also a contributing factor. But again, those things don't explain the magnitude of the shift from the last Obama election to the Trump election. I went back and looked at like the rural counties in Wisconsin and essentially Donald Trump in some way, depending on how you measure it, kind of matched Ronald Reagan's performance in 1984 in those parts of the state when Ronald Reagan was winning a landslide election nationally. Donald Trump was winning a nail-biter nationally and in Wisconsin, and yet he performed as well in those rural counties. So that was the story to me. So it seems like the story going forward is can he do that again in 2020? We've got a couple factors going on here. First, Hillary Clinton will not be the nominee. Right. Donald Trump is no longer the outsider. He's now the president of the United States and has a record. And the third thing that I hear a lot about, especially in rural parts of the country, especially in a place like Wisconsin, where the tariffs have really taken a bite on the right. agriculture industry, the dairy industry, how do those things, do you think, factor in to whether or not he can run up those kind of numbers in 2020? Yeah, I think they're all important. Um, the tariff thing is tricky because I've gone around and talked to voters in these counties that voted for Donald Trump. Many of them are farmers who've been affected by the tariffs. But a lot of the people that have been affected by the tariffs are kind of waiting it out and they're kind of giving Donald Trump the benefit of the, benefit of the doubt if they were Trump voters to begin with, even though they're hurting. Not all of them, but many of them are. So it, that's kind of an X factor. The other thing is, like we alluded to before, some of the counties that voted for Trump I would say, you know, a significant but small number of them are very swingy and they tend to vote against the party in power. So there could be some swing back. But the other thing is, <laughs> the 
The other way to look at it is despite this incredible, historically freakish performance in rural parts of the state, he still only won statewide by a handful of votes. So he could do almost as well in these places and still lose if he performs poorly in suburbs, for example. And if the Democrats are as mobilized as they have been since this election, um, that's the other piece of the puzzle is just what's happened in some of these Democratic suburbs and cities and how mobilized people are um, by him. So he's mobilizing the other side. And, and then again, a big X factor is the, the particularly the more conservative suburban areas where he has carried them, but not by the levels you know, that Mitt Romney did, for example, or that Scott Walker used to. Craig Gilbert is Washington bureau chief for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. My name is Congressman Sean Duffy. Sean Duffy is a Republican congressman representing the 7th District of Wisconsin. He's also a former lumberjack, by the way, and a former real-world cast member. True story. Wisconsin's 7th is a sprawling rural district that encompasses almost the entire northern chunk of the state. Agriculture is one of the main industries there. Representative Duffy says that based on what he was seeing and hearing back in 2016, he had a good hunch that President Trump would win his state. What you saw was this swell of support for Donald Trump, though it was was silent in the sense that people wouldn't put a sign in the yard. And actually, if a pollster called, they wouldn't say, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because of all of the news coverage. It didn't seem to be in civil society okay to say you're voting for President Trump, but they loved his message. So I saw that happening in our state. And what's unique is you have Milwaukee and Madison in the cities. They're liberal. They're a little more progressive. But you know the suburbs of Milwaukee are very conservative. And traditionally, the rural parts of Wisconsin have trended a little bit blue. But what you've seen over the last six, eight years is rural Wisconsin has trended in a very aggressive fashion, far more conservative. Blue Dog Democrats in rural Wisconsin have been left behind by the Democrat Party, and they found a home with the Republicans. And it was that switch in rural Wisconsin that I think brought President Trump in 16 the win. And Romney Ryan won, at least in my the rural parts of my district, won by well, like a point and a half in 2012, and Trump won by 20 in my district, 16. That's a huge swing in rural Wisconsin. That's exactly what I was going to get to. Is is this unique to Trump, or is it that your district just had been trending slowly over the years, more Republican, and it sort of peaked with Trump? Both. We're trending in the Republican direction in rural Wisconsin, but then Trump outperformed it big time because... He had a message that resonated with rural voters. They feel like they've been left behind. They're the forgotten men and women of America that President Trump often said he was going to fight for. And you know they would care less about transgender bathrooms in schools, and they care more about their jobs and their kids getting jobs and paying their mortgage and putting food on the table. And when President Trump would talk about border security or would talk about fighting for better trade deals, they felt like that would impact them in the right way. And therefore, his message resonated with rural voters far more than Hillary Clinton's. And also, I think candidates matter. Barack Obama was a compelling candidate with a compelling message. And so was President Trump. And so we're not a state where everyone is locked in, Republican and Democrat. We do have a swingability to the state. And President Trump 
by the power of his candidacy, was able to swing those voters over into his category. You have a lot of dairy farms in your district. Dairy farmers are really struggling right now, especially small dairy farms. Some of this is related to the trade issue and tariffs specifically. So I'm wondering what those farmers, those rural folks think about the battle right now over trade and how it's impacting them personally in a pretty devastating way. It's been devastating. You're absolutely right. It's not a recession. It's almost a depression for dairy farmers. And the main factor is our farmers are really good. They produce more milk. And it's become a supply and demand issue. The prices have fallen dramatically and it's made it hard for our farmers to stay in business because they're not getting a sufficient price for their milk. But that in conjunction with some of the trade disputes has made the pain a little bit worse. And more specifically, it has come with what's happened in Mexico. We would sell a lot of milk to Mexico. And because of the steel and aluminum tariffs, the Mexicans have put tariffs on our milk. With that said, even though the farmers are going through some painful times in our state, they're still supportive of the president. Now they'll say, you got to tell him he's got to help us out. He's got to, got, we got to fix the milk problem. And we're in a lot of pain. But I support what he's doing. I support that he's trying to put our country first over other countries. They're behind the message, even though they're going through such a tough time. And I'll tell you, I don't know how long that lasts, if the pain continues or gets worse. But today, they're still with him. Do you know the percent that Scott Walker got in your district? I'm assuming because he lost, he did a little bit worse in your district. He did. I think he was 57 in my district, 58 in my district. So what happened and what does 2018 tell you for Trump in 2020? Well, if we're students of political history, we know that the first off-term election of a new president is really challenging. Barack Obama in 2010 lost 63 House seats. It was a bloodbath for Democrats in his first off year. And the same was for Republicans with President Trump's first off year. It was a more challenging environment for us. The environment is always challenging for the party in power. And it was still a really close race. And I don't think that the Walker administration fought as hard as they could have and should have. And I also think there was an issue, a little lag from President Trump and suburban voters, uh, suburban moms. They trended away from us in 2018, created a real problem. I do think that they're going to trend back and they are coming back to us because border security is an issue for them. They're compassionate. They want to see the issue resolved, but they also see that an open border and the kind of human suffering it creates is not good for the country and good for those who are coming here. And I don't think they're going to buy into socialism either. And so those two points are going to bode well for the president in the suburbs of Milwaukee, which has traditionally been a really strong Republican area. When those moms come back, will hit the numbers that are necessary to win in 2020, which we didn't really have in 2018. Do you think it matters then what kind of Democrat is nominated? So, for example, a Joe Biden as the nominee versus a Bernie Sanders. Does that make it more challenging for a Democrat? It does. Okay. So how so? I think if, if Biden is the nominee, obviously Joe Biden's a liberal. But with how far the Democrat Party has come over, he now is seen as a, as a moderate. I mean, the left has moved so far that the traditional liberals seem more moderate. Joe Biden is a fighter and a scrapper. And I think he is the one candidate that if he gets the nomination will make Wisconsin far more in play in our state than Bernie or Kamala or Booker, Elizabeth Warren. Those candidates, I don't think, are going to play in our state, but, but actually Joe would. 
draw from Scranton. <laughs> Congressman Sean Duffy, thank you so much for joining me. Amy, thank you for having me on. And by the way, if anyone who listens to your podcast wants to come listen to my podcast uh, with members of Congress, they can search me online, Sean Duffy and podcast. They can find me there. Way to get a plug in. Well done. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. <laughs> Republican Congressman Sean Duffy told us he thinks only Joe Biden can win the state for Democrats in 2020. But as Democrats try to learn from their mistakes of 2016, a lot of the focus is not on a person, but a place. Milwaukee got a lot of the blame for Hillary Clinton's loss in Wisconsin back in 2016. I think people sort of thought, well, gee, the DNC is going to come in and lay the foundation for spending and create the kind of financial platform on which we can all rely. That's Democratic Congresswoman Gwen Moore. She represents the city of Milwaukee. I think that to the extent that the DNC did not spend money, it put a burden on those local elected officials to try to to do what you really can't do in a presidential camp. You can't duplicate or compete with presidential spending. And that resonated with the vote. I mean, you actually have to ask African-Americans for their vote. You can't just say, well, gee, you know, you know, we got the Democrat there. So come on out. In 2018, more people cast ballots in a midterm election in the state than ever before. Voter turnout among black and Latino voters also increased and Democrats did better. Not only did Senator Tammy Baldwin cruise to victory in her reelection campaign, Democrats managed to win the governorship as well. Congresswoman Moore credits these wins with what she calls a, quote, course correction. I called Tammy Baldwin up shortly after the 2016 election, you know, as soon as I could get up out of bed, which was not the next day, like Hillary, and said, not on my watch, girlfriend. This is not going to happen in 2018. We got to get started now. But there's another lesson learned from 2016 that Moore says Democrats shouldn't forget. A long primary season dilutes support for the eventual nominee. And it played right out before her eyes in Wisconsin. Sanders won the primary there in April of 2016, but he didn't endorse Clinton until two weeks before the convention. He won 71 of the 72 counties. People were very excited about Bernie. My own son, who's an elected official in Wisconsin, uh, was a Bernie delegate. And so he and I were duking it out. Wait a minute. You were, you, you, did you come to? I actually gave birth to a Bernie delegate, you know? (laughs) So did you go to Philadelphia then together I, as as we, a Bernie we, and a Hillary delegate? It, he was a Bernie delegate. I was a Hillary delegate. We were in Philadelphia together. Yeah. And, and did you share a car together? How was that? How how did you talk about your differences? We did. We went to state convention together. We sat as delegates uh, together. We had yes, we 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 did share some insights. And since yeah, what then, were we have shared some insights. Okay. I mean, I, I was telling him, you know, that I hope this convention in Philadelphia doesn't look more like the 1968 convention in Chicago. But at that time, I was being very apocalyptic about it. Uh, when I felt very concerned that the delegates weren't coming together uh, at the end, uh, the way they, uh, they should have, that the primary season was being extended you know, well into the fall. And of course, that's something that I am concerned about now. I, I, I do want, you know, it's, it's what, it's going to be uh, 400 some days 
between now and the time that we nominate someone. And I want that to be the end of some of these candidates campaigning. I don't want them to continue to campaign uh, after the 16th of July. We have a, a fantastic group of, of nominees. And I mean, the bar is so low for a president now that I just don't want to blow it. Any one of these candidates would, would really be excellent. We, we need to realize as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, that we might have all come over here on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Congresswoman Moore, who you just heard, has a message of unity for Democrats. But Republicans are already working to divide them. Take, for example, something Republican Congressman Sean Duffy told us earlier. These progressive socialist policies, you might like them in the Bronx. You might like them in San Francisco. But you come to Wisconsin with that message, it is not going to play well in our state. And Donald Trump's going to absolutely destroy his opposition. Republicans took a page out of that playbook in 2018 in the race against Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin. Senator Baldwin and the radical left want a socialist health care system and open borders. Even so, Baldwin won re-election by nearly 11 points. So how'd she do it? She did talk about health care a lot, but mostly in the context of what her opponent would do to undermine things like protections for pre-existing conditions. What she didn't do in her advertising was promote her support of a Medicare for All plan, I asked her how the 2020 Democratic nominee should talk about the issue of health care in Wisconsin, and she pointed to these words of wisdom she's picked up along the way. Don't point out the difference between sky blue and navy blue. Point out the difference between blue and red. Where is President Trump going to take you? What has he been doing during his first term? And what are, frankly, every one of the Democrats who have announced for president, what direction are they going in? So I don't want to say I changed the subject, but that's the choice voters have. Are you going to take away health care from millions of people? Or are you going to embrace bold new ideas to expand access and affordability and quality? And we do need a debate on how we get there. This will be healthy. Within the Democratic Party, you're saying? or Well, I think I can take the partisan Republican candidates out of this, but I certainly include Republicans in that conversation in the state of Wisconsin. They care about their loved ones with pre-existing conditions, too. They know we can do better. Are the 2020 candidates asking you for advice about how to go into the upper Midwest and what to do when they're there? Absolutely. Right after my campaign was concluded and we got these really strong results, I had a lot of opportunity to talk not just with people who back then were thinking about throwing their hats in the ring, but also folks who were thinking about running for re-election to the Senate in 2020, who were thinking about running for other offices and to walk through the blueprint we used because I do think it's something that actually I think it applies nationally, but I think particularly in states that have enormous working class economies, whether that's manufacturing, agriculture, some of the hardest working people in the world who want nothing more than to be secure, to be able to send their kids to college, to be able to own a home, to be able to send the farm to the next generation, to be able to see real wage increases. 
we have to engage and speak to them. Almost all the candidates now, they're either doing it at this moment or talk about this. I'm the candidate that can win back Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, right? Vote for me, Democrats, because I'll put that blue wall back together. Is there such thing, though, as a upper Midwest blue wall kind of Democrat that's different from another kind of nominee on the Democratic side? I think that any of the candidates who have offered themselves can do the hard work that it takes addressing the issues that people worry about, that they wake up in the middle of the night thinking about. It's showing up. It's exposing yourself to the industries that are prevalent in different regions of the country, but certainly in the upper Midwest. Right. You don't have to be a Midwesterner to do this, in other words. You can be a coastal representative. You can be from a coast and understand Midwestern You can be from a coast and understand that we need an economy that is fairer and that rewards the dignity of hard work. And we definitely need a next president who gets that. And it has to be more than just rhetoric. That was Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin. Okay, so here's my take on Wisconsin. November 2020 is still a long way away, but we may not have to wait that long to get a sense for which direction the state is leaning. Next week, there's an election for the state Supreme Court. Back in 2018, a Democratic victory in another state Supreme Court race was seen as a harbinger of a good year for Democrats statewide. And it was. Take a listen to Craig Gilbert. He's the Washington bureau chief from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The liberal candidate is favored by most people, Mm. but it's a real race. I think there's the the insider wisdom is that she's more likely to win, the, the liberal candidate more likely to win than the conservative candidate. And that would be a status quo effect on the court. It would be next year (laughs) where you can have another election that's going to take place concurrent with a presidential primary, which is probably going to draw Democrats to the polls because of an open Democratic race. If the liberal candidate wins this time around, that could flip the court and wins next time around. So there's that's something to watch. Just also, you know, these tend to tell you something about how motivated the base is. So Madison and Dane County is the great barometer in Wisconsin for that. And, and that area has been turning out like crazy relative to the rest of the state in these court races. So that can, that can have a big impact in a low turnout election. So you just heard it. This year, the liberal candidate is favored to win. It's a nonpartisan election, so judges aren't technically running on a party line. But we should pay attention to who turns out and at what level. Remember, many Democrats blame a lack of voter enthusiasm for Clinton's loss in 2016. We should pay attention again in 2020 when another Supreme Court race takes place concurrent with the state's April primary. Not only will it be an early gauge of voter enthusiasm, but it could also flip control of the Supreme Court to Democrats. In other words, don't take your eyes off Wisconsin. It's going to give us lots to chew on before we even get to Milwaukee for the Democratic convention next July. My interview with presidential candidate Julian Castro is next. Stick with us. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. 
In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Now we're going to turn to a Democratic presidential candidate from Texas. No, it's not Beto O'Rourke. My name is Julian Castro, candidate for president. Sure, Beto has been garnering a lot of media attention lately, in part because he's raised so much money. But Julian Castro, whose grandmother immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico and then worked here as a maid and a cook, says he is used to upending people's expectations. I can't think of a single time in my life where I haven't been an underdog. What I'm used to doing is going out there and working hard. You know, I'm going to walk the walk in the campaign, in my vision for the future, in working hard and knocking on doors and getting to those town halls. And I think people will see by the end of it that I can defeat Donald Trump and um, win this nomination. And Julian Castro does have some experience in winning. From 2009 to 2014, he was the mayor of San Antonio. After that, he served as the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And even though currently he's polling at about 0 to 2% in most national polls, he expects that to change as soon as voters get to know him. Right now, the voters are, are just kind of, you know, I think starting to pay attention to who all of the different candidates are. The biggest impression that a lot of everyday voters get out there is, you know, who are you people? And, you know, let, let me sort this out at some point. Uh, of course, all of us follow these things all the time. But, you know, I've learned already that that's not the case for, for most folks. They're going to get there. Um, and it's up to all of us to make sure that people know what we want to do for them. I've always believed that the number one thing you have to do as a candidate is to let somebody know in concrete terms what you would do for them and for their family if you're elected. And that's what I'm going to try and do. In past years, being a person who is not part of Washington, i.e. somebody who's a governor or comes from outside of the Beltway, is considered a big plus. This year, the people who are getting the most attention, though, whether it's Bernie Sanders, Vice President Biden, Senator Elizabeth Warren, of course, are all people who reside within the Beltway. You're one of a handful of people who did not make a career out of being in Washington. Why do you think that kind of message at this point doesn't seem to be breaking through as much as the more high-profile Washington-based candidates? Well, it's early, and I think because they are Washington-based candidates, and you have a New York and uh, D.C. media that, of course, naturally focuses on that. You know this better than I do in terms of the history of the different presidential candidates, whether it was Carter or Clinton in 92 or even Barack Obama. I mean, he was in Washington but very new to it. They didn't start off as the front runner in their races. They started off between 1% and 3 or 5%. Part of that is because there's always a focus at the beginning on those folks that the media are most familiar with. And I'm not saying that's not earned, because I do think, you know, of course, Senator Sanders ran a strong race last time. Uh, Senator Warren uh, has uh, been popular for a while. But there's also this dynamic of 
the people finding out about other candidates who have not been in the limelight, not been in the spotlight of D.C. And you can see that that's happening now. I saw somewhere also recently that you were at a Latino summit in Stanford and said you were going to be announcing a bold new immigration platform. Is there any preview you can give to us about what this is or when you're going to do it? Well, as much as I would love to break news Come on, uh, break right it. now, I know, I know. Uh, now, let me just say that um, Donald Trump has taken us in completely the wrong direction on immigration. He makes people think that, um, wants people to believe that we have to choose between cruelty, like separating little children from their family, and border security. We don't have to make that choice. Uh, we can be compassionate with the 10 to 11 million undocumented immigrants who are here in the United States and also people who are seeking to become asylees or seeking refugee status. And we can also have border security. And so I'm going to lay out uh, in the next couple of weeks an immigration plan that goes through all of the different ways that we can do that by ensuring that we offer a pathway to citizenship for those undocumented immigrants as long as they have not committed a serious crime that looks at a different way to treat people who are seeking asylum or refugee status than how they're being treated right now at our ports of entry that treats people who have TPS or temporary protected status differently and also, of course, maintains uh, a secure border, which, of course, every nation in the world is concerned about maintaining a secure border. So I'm going to do that in the next uh, couple of weeks, and I think that um, it's going to be a good point of contrast to Donald Trump. He has a very dark vision for the country when it comes to immigration, a wrong-headed vision, and uh, I have a more positive one. Now, you also, like many of your peers who are running for president, You've said that you want to make universal health care a top priority. What exactly does universal health care mean to you? You know, I grew up with a grandmother that had diabetes. And right before she passed away, she had to have one of her feet amputated, which is very common for a lot of diabetics. Mm -hmm. Throughout that whole time, she had Medicare. And, you know, that was a real godsend. I want to make sure that Medicare is there for everyone so that everybody can have access to Medicare, that we strengthen the program for the people that have it now, and that we expand it to include everyone. I also believe that if folks... So everyone, have, everyone, it will not be an age-related thing. It will be anybody who wants it can get into it. Can get it, yes. I do yeah. believe, though, if somebody you know has a wants to have a private or supplemental plan, I believe that's fine. I'm okay with that. So I believe striking that balance between having Medicare there available for everybody, and also for those who are satisfied with what they have, allowing them to have their plan, that strikes a strong balance for our country. Uh, what I don't believe is that um, this administration should tear apart the Affordable Care Act the way that they're doing. Millions of people stand to lose coverage if they continue to tear apart the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, I see in the community that I live in the consequences of that. Texas has the highest rate of uninsured adults, and I believe also children. And, um, you know, that means that illnesses go untreated. It means that people die sooner than they should. And that's unacceptable in the, in the wealthiest nation in the world. And yet in your state of Texas, I want to talk about Texas for a couple minutes, you have two United States senators, both of whom have campaigned 
actively against Obamacare, have talked about repealing Obamacare. So in a state that has incredibly high, as you pointed out, very high uninsurance rates, why isn't Obamacare more popular? Well, I do think that it's a lot more popular than they give it credit for. I mean, we've seen the polling across the country these last couple of years that shows that uh, it's more popular than, you know, any plan that uh, that Republicans have put forward. And mostly that's also because they haven't actually put forward any plan. And we've seen the Affordable Care Act gain in popularity as people recognize that these Republicans don't have anything else to offer. So your question about why is it not more popular or why do these senators oppose it? It's just, to me, it's just uh, empty ideology. And it's one of the reasons that Ted Cruz almost lost his Senate race and that John Cornyn will be very vulnerable in 2020 because they are completely out of step with the majority of Texans and the majority of Americans. Most people don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting just in case they or a member of their family gets sick. They need the kind of health care coverage that the Affordable Care Act provides. And even more so, uh, it would be better if we, had a, if we had Medicare that was available to them. You just mentioned two, two points. So let's start with the first. John Cornyn, Republican senator up this year. Your brother, Congressman, your twin brother, Congressman Joaquin Castro, thinking of challenging him. Is that going to happen, you think? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you can bring uh, all kinds you know, of news today. I know, right? Oh, my brother, uh, my brother would, would never mad. forgive me if yeah. I. Yeah. So, but I will say that it's something that he is serious about in terms of his consideration of it. You know, Joaquin has really done great work um, as a congressman. Most recently, it was his resolution that the Senate voted on, gave fifty-nine votes to to block the declaration of a national emergency by the president. And so this is the first piece of legislation that Trump had to veto. You know, he takes his role seriously. So I have no doubt that if he decides to run, that he can defeat John Cornyn. But um, when he makes a decision, I'm sure that he'll let that out. So can you tell me one more thing? Did he grow out that beard so that people would not confuse him with you? I think he grew out the beard because he finally wanted to be uglier than me. (laughs) <laughs> he I'm sure you've never used that. You've never people. used that joke yeah. before. He yeah. goes around telling people that I'm a minute uglier than he is, and he had to go prove that he could be uglier than me by actually growing that beard. You don't like the beard? No. You know, he and I can't. It looks uneven. You know, so some guys can grow facial hair mm-hmm. and it looks even. I don't know if he's just you know not like shaving grooming it the right it. way. Yeah. Or, yeah, grooming it the right way. You can see that I don't have a beard, so I'm not used to the terminology <laughs> here, right? But uh, it looks uneven, and I hope that he ends up uh, that he ends up shaving it. <laughs> um, you're, you are also, as of right now, the only Latino in the field. When we talk about states that are early up in the process, a couple of those states like Iowa and New Hampshire overwhelmingly white, but as we get into Super Tuesday, the diversity of the states, the, at least the population in those states, really increases. Is that part of your strategy, really looking in in those um, Latino communities, appealing to these voters based on your experience, your background? Well, of course it is. You know, I, I have always believed that the first thing somebody needs to do when they run for office, and especially if they serve in office, is that you have to represent everybody that you're charged with representing. And so uh, I'm very mindful of that. At the same time, 
Um, I do think that there's special significance to my candidacy, uh, resonance within the Latino community, especially because these days a lot of Latinos feel like they're being attacked by Donald Trump in the rhetoric, certainly in his policies. And so there's a, there's a special meaning there. But there's also a lot that gives me hope. Uh, I remember last Father's Day in June, I went down to McAllen, Texas, uh, which is on the border. I was there with some activists who were protesting at the Ursula Processing Center, which was one of these centers where they're separating children from their parents. And at the protest, the people who were there, they were white, they were black, they were Asian American, they were Latino like me and like the children that were being held there. So I, you could see that it wasn't the color of people's skin, but it was the values that everybody shared that compelled them to be there to protest that policy. And I'm going to put my faith in those values and the fact that we can come together even though we're from different backgrounds. I believe that I can do well, not only in Texas and California and these Latino-heavy states, but also in Iowa and New Hampshire. Secretary Castro, thanks so much for taking this time with us. Thanks a lot, Amy. Appreciate it. So I just learned that my colleague, Tanzina Vega, the Monday through Thursday host of The Takeaway, also interviewed Julian Castro. This was back in 2016 when he was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. They discussed, among other things, music. And we learned he's a big fan of Jay-Z, Billy Joel, Vicente Fernandez, and John Bon Jovi. That's all for us today. And of course, you can always send a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Hi, everybody. We need your help if you like this podcast. Make sure you subscribe if you're not already getting us every day. And tell your friends. Plus, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us in a big way and it helps other people find us.